Thinner Logs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hi everyone, my name is Eric Garneau, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories Made podcast, featuring the theme, The Truth Is Out There. As you might have guessed by that, this month we're featuring some fine folks from Improvised X-Files, a great comedy show running every 10pm Friday at the Playground Theater in Chicago. Uh, to that end, this episode we've got Improvised X-Files Sean Price and Jake Allen Miller, plus returning friends from Peaches and Hot Sauce, James D'Amato and Patrick O'Rourke, and new friend, improviser Jennifer Baird, plus the usual music from me, Dwight Hassler, and Claire Friedman, this time with a supernatural twist. Uh, if you enjoy listening to your stories, have you ever thought about coming to a live recording? Because you totally should. And as it happens, our next recording is this Sunday, May 18th, at the Public House Theater, 3914 North Clark Street in Chicago at 7pm. As always, your stories is free to attend, and the theme this month is fellowship. Why is it Fellowship. Well, because the Nerdalogs are hard at work on a new run of shows entitled Lord of the Wrigley, The Fellowship of the Cubs, that combines Tolkien-style adventure with Chicago baseball. Who doesn't love that? Seriously. The show opens May 23rd, which is less than two weeks away, if you can believe it, and runs every Friday and Saturday night at 8pm and every Sunday at 2pm for six weeks. That's a lot of chances to see this show, and it's going to be really, really awesome. Uh, More info on the show, as well as tickets... Uh, is available or will, will be soon on our website at www.nerdalogs.com. I think that's all I've got for today, so thanks everyone for listening and enjoy the show. Gosh! Um, I believe it was, um, was it Keith who mentioned that today is Easter? <laughs> so we're gonna, yeah. we're gonna dedicate this song to the big J man who, who has risen. This is a song about, Things that have risen. Res- rising from the dead. Yeah, you know. <laughs> you know, same Z's. Yeah. <laughs> Basically the same thing. Yeah, alright, so here's the code. Uh, we did a song by this artist like January 2013, our first show here, and it, we did it really poorly and it didn't make it on the podcast, so here's our redemption. Alright. I wasn't dead. No, Claire, I didn't do that one. I was not part of that. We use an iPad to do, like, the backing tracks, and it just didn't yeah. work. Well, you stopped smoking since then, so... Like, <laughs> I'm just <All> saying. Right. <laughs> it helps. <laughs> it's close to midnight, and something evil's lurking in the dark. Before you make it, you start to feel as far as 
hands from Oh no <laughs> You feel the cold hand And wonder if you'll ever see the sun You close your eyes And hope that this is just imagination But all the while You'll hear a preacher creeping up behind You're out of time new friend of the Nerdlogs. He's, uh, he helped us run our game night last week. Super great dude from Peaches and Hot Sauce. He hosts the One Shot Podcast, James D'Amato. Thanks, everyone. It wasn't explained to me that it would be following Thriller. <laughs> so that's just the worst. But seriously, thank you, guys. Uh, when I heard the theme for this month, I instantly thought about my favorite historical hero. 
He was a man who believed that people deserved freedom, justice, and education. A man who was willing to suffer for his conviction. A person who maintains an extremely tenuous relationship with the truth, even today. I am speaking, of course, of Niccolo Machiavelli. I can tell that uh, some of you are not thinking of Machiavelli in the same terms that I do. He is, after all, a guy who spent his entire life scheming to destroy his political rivals while wearing black robes and rocking a goatee with a widow's peak. Uh, Today, this guy's name literally means thought marked with cunning, duplicity, or bad faith. And his political philosophy is literally the view that politics are so amoral by nature that any means of attaining power, no matter how unscrupulous, is completely justifiable. Uh, All that stuff is totally true, but despite that, Machiavelli is totally the good guy. Uh, The Renaissance was a remarkable period for art and culture. For politics, it was a total shit show. The two ruling families at the time were the Medici and the Borgias. Uh, To put it in scholarly terms, they were history's greatest dirtbags. Seriously, these dudes were like Tywin Lannister, Littlefinger, and Ares Targaryen all rolled into one. Uh, Really? Which one? Come on. Lorenzo de' Medici, Machiavelli's greatest enemy, was the de facto ruler of Machiavelli's native Florence. His his Wikipedia entry states that Lorenzo is remembered as a patron of the arts who ruled during Italy's golden age, which ended shortly after his death. If you invest a little bit more time into understanding this particular character, you'll find that Lorenzo was a despot, and the reason the Golden Age ended in Florence is someone pissed away all the region's wealth on ridiculous monuments to himself and his family. At the at that time, Italy was a disassociated collection of principalities, the rulers of which were all similar to Lorenzo, selfish, incompetent, and short-sighted. Machiavelli spent his days reading histories and political philosophy. The Greek and Roman republics were his favorite subjects. He spent every day reveling in the idea of existing in a republic. Born in the Florentine Republic, Machiavelli only got to experience republican life for a very short period of time. Machiavelli's detractors credit this to his incompetence as a military leader. And make no mistake, Machiavelli's art of war was a shit show. Uh, it was controversial because from a military perspective, it was totally wrong-headed. Machiavelli asserted that infantry was the true power of war, despite the popularity of artillery and cavalry, maintaining a large standing army was, in his opinion, the only way to stay safe as a state. Uh, he also suggested that the strongest army would be one made up of citizens and not mercenaries. In his words... Mercenaries lack the conviction and loyalty of a man defending his home. Though Machiavelli did lead several successful battles on behalf of the Florentine Republic with his art of war strategies, he was eventually defeated by overwhelming force, and many scholars remember the art of war as one of his greatest failures. 
However, that's only if we forget that Machiavelli is an extremely canny and duplicitous politician. If you break down his art of war and compare his Republican value and uh, see it in light of his Republican values, it's actually a brilliant political maneuver. He advises military leaders to do away with artillery and cavalry, the only units which are likely to contain nobility. He espouses the values of citizen militias, in effect telling his political enemies to maintain large armies of citizens. The people Machiavelli sought to propel him into a position of real power. You see, Machiavelli was a huge proponent of something called the divine trick. Originally proposed by Plato in the myth of the irons, the divine trick is essentially the idea that with the correct religion and governance, people could be fooled into creating a utopian society. He really thought he could trick everyone around him into doing what was best for themselves. Unfortunately, this particular gambit failed utterly. (laughs) Shortly after his militia fell, he was seized and charged with conspiracy against the Medici. He was tortured for three weeks by the rope. Uh, The rope, for those of you who don't know about medieval torture, is when they would (laughs) bound your arms behind your back and then drop you from a great height and suspend you by your arms to repeatedly dislocate your shoulders. Really terrifying. Uh, Under this torture, under three weeks of receiving this torture, periodically every day, he refused to break. Most of all, he refused to admit any wrongdoing. And because he was a noble, he was released three weeks after his torture. So... He went on, uh, after being released from this torture, to write his most famous work, The Prince, which was supposedly a way of apologizing to the Medici and swearing his allegiance to them. In reality, it was a tremendous fuck you to every single petty dictator in Italy. Uh, The Prince is supposed to be advice on ruling, um, but he addressed it to Lorenzo the Magnificent, And in his introduction, uh, he calls Lorenzo Lorenzo the Magnificent, which would be a fine way to appeal to Lorenzo's uh, ego if Lorenzo did not happen to have an uncle who was actually called Lorenzo the Magnificent because he actually did good things with his rule. (laughs) Essentially, what Machiavelli was saying in that introduction was to Lorenzo, who will never be his uncle. Um. Now, there are only a few sentences actually dedicated to maintaining a traditionally hereditary principality in the prince. Because, as he points out, if such a prince is of ordinary ability, he will be able to maintain his state. The subtext reads more like this. Unless you are a tremendous fuck-up, it takes no effort to be prince. Actually, because of the context of Lorenzo's family having quite recently lost and reclaimed power, combined with Machiavelli's constant allusion to the actual Lorenzo the Magnificent, the passage reads more like this. Unless you are a tremendous fuck-up, which we both know you are, (laughs) it takes no effort to be prince. The bulk of the prince actually deals with conquering other states. This is where the book gets its bad reputation. He essentially tells Lorenzo the only way to unseat another prince is to murder him along with every single member of his family. 
the reason being because a prince does absolutely nothing to maintain power the citizens the citizenry is not going to remember the follies of the old prince and they'll see every mistake of the new prince as incompetence if a member of his family should become a public figure the citizenry would rally behind him remembering only the golden days of old uh this shows Mach- the section that really shows Machiavelli's true colors, though, is what he wrote about free states. Free states being republics. Machiavelli suggested that free states still have a ruler. Instead of a human prince, the leader of a free state is liberty itself. It's difficult unseating liberty because liberty is immortal. Long after you remove a free state, liberty lives on in the minds and hearts of every man, woman, and child that ever lived under that banner. Machiavelli suggested that the only way to ever truly conquer a free state is to kill everyone who ever lived in it. Now, he does offer a different path for the prince who is squeamish about genocide uh, to effectively conquer, and he phrases it like this, to effectively conquer a free state, one can change no laws, as it would absolutely upset the citizenry and cause a revolt. To monitor a free state, it is best for a prince to move the capital of his empire to the capital of the free state. And it only makes sense that the laws of the land should reflect the laws of the capital, so the laws of the free state should be proliferated throughout all of your territories. Finally, to avoid potential revolt, a prince should personally adopt every law and custom of his land effectively advising a prince conquering a free state to give up his country and to rule and to allow the citizens to rule him and to accept liberty as his prince after several chapters warning any aspiring prince against cruelty oppression or miserliness he goes on once again to herald the virtues of maintaining a strong citizen army If there is any doubt about Machiavelli and his intent for the prince, he ends it with this poem, Discipline Over Rage. Will to take up arms, and the battle will be short. For ancient valor is still alive in the hearts of Italy. Perhaps it is fitting that the majority of people remember Machiavelli as a monster. After all, he believed the truth was a privilege meant only for those clever enough to continue telling lies. Thank you all very much. Thank you, James. See, you come to your stories, you learn stuff. This is quality, quality programming. Up next from Improvised X-Files, Mr. Sean Price. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for, for having us. Uh, so I, I get very uh, stressed out when I watch movies with people uh, because I always want there to be agreement with me and everyone else watching the movie. <laughs> if, I, if I really like the movie, I want everyone else to really like the movie. And if I hate the movie, I want all my friends to hate the movie as well. <laughs> so I get, I get really stressed out about that. Uh, so back in 2001, uh, a movie came out called A Beautiful Mind, uh, the Ron Howard film. Now, before I continue, I I don't love love A Beautiful Mind, but I do like it a lot. I do really like A Beautiful Mind. Uh, it's got it's got kind of shit on the years since, but I I support it. Anyway, me and my 
me and my best friend in the whole wide world, Alex Aaron, uh, went to see A Beautiful Mind together in 2001. And I watched it, really liked it. When we were walking out, I was like, that was really good. And Alex said, yeah, it was really good. And then that was it. That was the end of our Beautiful Mind conversation. Uh, cut to eight years later. Me and Alex are uh, living together. We're in uh, film school together at the University of New Orleans. Uh, and I'm taking a screenwriting class. And one of the classes, we watched some scenes from A Beautiful Mind as an example of, of scene structure or whatever. And I went back to where we lived. And I was like, hey, Alex, we watched some of A Beautiful Mind. I forgot how good that movie is. It's just a really well-made movie. And Alex was like, Sean, I got something to say to you. Uh, I don't like A Beautiful Mind. I never liked it. And it that crushed me. Our friendship was in shambles. And at that moment, I was, I, I was reeling from it. I was like, I don't know what to believe anymore. And because I'm non-confrontational, I just didn't bring it up ever again. I just went, oh, okay, and then went into my room and thought about it for an hour. <laughs> just thought about this for an hour. Uh, and so ever since then, every movie that me and Alex watched together, I just I have to like look in his eyes afterwards <laughs> and be like, so what did you think of the movie? Uh, a, example is uh, a few years later, I moved here at this point. He stayed there, but uh, that Terrence Malick movie, A Tree Life, came out. Uh, woo! Some, woo, some strong opinions coming from the crowd. Uh, I re- I really like Tree Life. Uh, I really liked it a lot. And then I was home for the holidays, and I brought it up. We were talking about our favorite movies that year, and I brought it up. Oh, I really like Tree Life. And Alex went like, Yeah, I saw it. And then we he moved on to another subject, and I was like. In my mind, I was like, that fucking asshole. <laughs> he, did, he didn't like Tree of Life. I bet he didn't like the Tree of Life. Why, he would say he liked it if he, if he did like it. But why can't he just say he didn't like it? Why not? But I didn't ask, instead of just asking, oh, did you not like it? I just <laughs> was in my mind about it for, forever. And so like, later on, I texted our mutual friend, John. And I said, John, can you ask Alex what he thought of it? Can you... You ask Alex what he thought of Tree of Life, and he got back to me a few minutes later. And he said, "Oh, Alex hated it," and I was just like, I was so heartbroken about it. Uh, and I thought, I was thinking, why, why can't my best friend be honest with me about movies that, that about disagreeing on movies? Because there are movies that he likes that I don't like, but he'll never tell me that he doesn't like a movie that I like. And very recently, it dawned on me why he doesn't do that, and it's because I am. A judgmental asshole. Uh, if you don't like a movie that I liked, I will hate you for it. Uh, and I'm, I'm coming to grips on it. Uh, like, I have good friends that have completely different political beliefs or religious beliefs. or They're total opposite personality types for me. I still love them, get along with them. But if they're like, oh, Bugs Life's my favorite Pixar movie, I'll be like, fuck you, dude. <laughs> There's Wally, there's Incredibles, <laughs> Toy Story 1, 2, and 3. You're gonna pick Bugs Life over that? Ugh. So, uh, so that's, that's why I, uh, I, I get super mental. Like, uh, my, me and my roommate went to see that movie Drive, like Ryan Gosling movie a few years ago. When we came out, I was like, that's one of the best movies I've ever seen. And he was like, it was shit. And I didn't talk to him for a week after it. 
Um, so, so I recently I've I've tried to calm down about it and and come to terms with it and realize that just because someone doesn't like the same movies that I don't like doesn't mean they're they're a worse person than me uh, or anything. Um, and so recently, uh, I can't, I went back home to visit for over Christmas. And I was talking to Alex, my best friend in the whole wide world, about our favorite movies of that previous year. And I was like, you know what movie I really, really love? Pacific Rim. This is like my top ten movies of the year. And Alex was like, I didn't really like it. And I was like, that's okay. (laughs) Thank you. I I was really looking forward to sharing my Bugs Life fan fiction with you guys. No, I don't know. Another guest from Peaches and Hot Sauce, Patrick O'Rourke. You might say we're making new friends. (laughs) Hey, that's the name of my podcast. You guys, the truth isn't out there. It's right here. (laughs) Generally, an absolute truth is defined as something that is valid, no matter the context. And over the past several years... I've compiled a complete list of absolute truths. (laughs) These statements are not objective. There can be no argument uh, had about their validity. They are true. Simple as that. Please save your questions for the end, because I'm sure they will be answered throughout this presentation. All right. Number one. I have 20 of these. It's like a BuzzFeed list. All right. (laughs) Number one. Despite its name... A twin-sized mattress is never big enough for two people. (laughs) An absolute truth. Number two. The biggest difference between men and women are their genitalia. (laughs) Number Number three. Embrace every moment because time flies when playing turn-by-turn strategy games. (laughs) Uh, Number four. Saves the day. Is not a good band. <laughs> it's, an ab- it's an absolute truth. All right, number five. Number five. Perhaps equally controversial. Number five. Red Man is an underrated rapper. And of course, number six. Everyone needs to give Weezer a break. Come on. Yeah. All right, number seven. A waffle is simply a pancake showing off. Number... Oh, man. Making enemies up here, but I'm sorry. It's the truth. It's crispy, damn it. Number eight, a scrambled egg is a failed omelet. <laughs> and of course, number nine, Dunkin' Donuts coffee is always better than Starbucks. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Alright. Alright, number ten, we're halfway through this. Uh, number ten, there are two types of people in the world those who can poop and those who cannot. Uh, number eleven, I feel very proud of that one. Uh, Number 11. (laughs) Video games reached their peak when NBA Jam Tournament Edition came out in 1994. (laughs) 
Mm. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't help you there. All right, number 12. No spinning and foosball. None of that shit. All right. No spinning. You can't, you can't spin the bar. It's cheating. It makes the game lame. Okay. <laughs> Number 13. No one will ever beat Grandma at Scrabble. It's impossible. Might have a chance at words with friends, but not Scrabble. Uh, number 14. Everyone is good at getting drunk, but most people are not good at being drunk. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> number 15 Your dog loves bacon steak And any strong smelling dead animal More than they love you <laughs> Alright number 16 If it's an article on BuzzFeed Then are you, you are too smart to be wasting your time reading it Alright Number 17 If it's an article on Gawker Then it's not verified And you need to check your facts <laughs> And number 18, if it's an article on the, uh, on the Economist, then you have not finished reading it. <laughs> uh, number 19, George W. Bush and Joe Biden are in fact the same folksy person. <laughs> All right, number 20, this is what I'll leave you with. The universe is only as big as you allow it to be. All right, thank you so much. I'm really glad that someone had the courage to come up here and just lay down some fucking truth. <laughs> Even though I shit on Weezer consistently. And will not stop because the Red Album is the second worst record I've ever purchased. Here's some truth about me. The first worst album I ever bought is St. Anger. And that's why I will... Thank you. And that's why I don't care what critics say about Death Magnetic. I will never ever spend money on Metallica ever again. Because St. Anger was like a betrayal to me. Okay. I'm done. Coming up next. That's the truth. Yeah. Coming up next. Um, this this uh this person is a, a huge supporter of Nerdlogs and Peaches and Hot Sauce on Twitter. She always shares our links and is just a great fan. And I'm really stoked that she decided to come share with us here today. Jennifer Baird. Um, it was interesting as I was thinking about what I was going to talk about uh, for this, I actually discovered a truth within it. Um, well, first off, I have stage fright, like severe stage fright. I'm scared right now. No, just kidding. Um, but this all started when I was really, really little, probably about three, that preschool age, uh, was uh, doing uh, the Christmas nativity uh, pageant program. And they were playing calypso music. Now, why there was calypso music at a school Catholic pageant show, I don't know. But anyway, I had on my little red dress and my tights with the little red ruffles on the butt. And they started playing the music, so I hitched the dress under my elbows as any three-year-old would, and I got my groove on. And I shook my little ruffled butt all over the place. And then a nun came over and just read me my shit. And it was like, little girls do not dance like this. Little girls who dance like this will go to hell. <laughs> yeah. This is what happens when you are born in western Kansas and you're Catholic. 
Anyway, I learned very early on that there are consequences if you do something on stage. Therefore, I set my entire fear for the next 30-some-odd <clears throat> years. <laughs> um, I still did... Uh, um, sorry, my eyes are watering. Allergy season. Um, I still did theater and dance classes, you know, all through school. But in high school... I always wanted to hide in the chorus because it was a safe place. I had that dream of being out front, but it was safer if I hung out with everybody else and just blended in. Though that was also ironically around the time, I got my first little inkling of what improvisation was. As we had this little after-school club, and they played more of the short-form games that you do when you warm up. And up until this point, I had no idea what the hell improv was. I just thought they were exercises you did in acting class. But when people were coming out and being funny, and in the back of my head I'm going, oh my god, I need to do this, but there's no way in hell. I'm not funny, but I, I can't do that. So I talked myself out of it. Check about another X number of years. Um, I'm in my 20s, and I've moved here to Chicago. And I was working at a comedy theater, and one of the ensemble members, who shall remain nameless, Tim Wedham, um, <laughs> I owe everything to that guy, looked at me while I was working in the box office and went, you're going to take an improv class. I went, no, I'm not. There is no way in hell you are getting me to do this. And he did, so I enrolled. And it was terrible. It, it was the absolute worst. I was so mad at him. So he made me take it again. I was really pissed off at him by this point. I was like, all right, fine. I'll do it. And it went a little bit better. The show was not so great. I don't remember it. I do remember I almost fell on my face, though. Well, that's about it. But it was in that second class. I was like, Maybe we got something here. <laughs> All right. So I kept taking more, and then taking more, and then, lo and behold, the rest is history. And I've been doing it for four years, and it's changed my life. I don't give a shit anymore. I mean that in a good way. <laughs> I can get out and just be like, well, this is here I am, and whatever consequences happen, yeah. <laughs> So be it. So if a little girl dancing like that is supposed to go to hell, I don't know, but this one's going to do it laughing all the way down there. So maybe I should thank that nun for screaming at me because she helped me find myself in the process. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you, thank you. I did the Catholic school thing, too. It is like... It's interesting to spend time among people that you absolutely don't agree with. Uh, it helps you. It helps you figure out what you do. All right, guys, we are in the home stretch. I believe we have one more story. I didn't miss anybody, right? There's no one who signed up online who like I am not. I have not introduced thus far. Okay, great. In that case, uh, it's very appropriate that the last story was about improv because, as I've said all night, we are here with the folks of Improvised X-Files uh, for the final story. It will be one of their number. I just want to plug their show. I saw it opening night. It was super, super great. It's every Friday at, what, 10.30 at the 10 playground? PM. 10 p.m. at the playground. Uh, basically, they will improvise an episode of X-Files before your eyes. They have music. They have cool costumes that make them look like agents and... Uh, <laughs> It's just, it's really, really great. And like I said, I, I have never seen X-Files, and I still really enjoyed it. So with that said, Jake Allen Miller. 
Uh, yeah, we're super honored to be here. I think uh, when we started doing our show, it was mainly the point was so that uh, we could get together with our friends and really kind of just kind of nerd out on these things that we love and kind of combine improv and these other things that we love. So it's exciting to be in a room of kindred spirits in that way. Um, and speaking of kindred spirits, thank you, Charles, for already mentioning the WWE Network tonight. Uh, it's a good, it's a good primer. For the story that I'm about to tell. Um, so here we go. Uh, on July 7th, 1996, Hulk Hogan turned heel. Hulk, Hulk Hogan turned heel and sent me on a quest for truth that I have been on for the rest of my life, uh, that I'm still on to this day. Uh, a real quick, if you don't know what I mean by heel, I think most people in this room probably do. Heels and baby faces are the sort of goofy insidery terms uh, for pro wrestling's good guys and bad guys. Pro wrestling started in like the early 20th century with like carnivals. It was a re- it was in the beginning a legitimate sporting event. A strong man would be on stage at these carnivals and challenge everyone in the room, whoever came, whoever was there, to come up and take him down, be able to uh, bring him down to the floor. Uh, but before long, these promoters, these carnies, realized that by manipulating the truth a little bit, by being in control of the outcomes, people would be even more engaged to the show that they were putting on. That they would, if they lied just a little bit, they could put on a better show. Uh, so eventually they created baby faces. These were plants that were in the crowd that looked like you and me, fresh, young guys. They looked like normal people and somehow they would come on stage and defeat these strong men. And these carnies actually discovered something really cool when they made good guys and bad guys. They became like, Myth makers. They became the modern authors of the really like the most prevalent morality play that we have that's still ongoing. <laughs> Professional wrestling. The morality play that for Jake Allen Miller, when, when he was like three years old to ten years old, used to define his sense of good and evil. It didn't matter, it didn't matter so much that the stories were fake, it mattered that good always won, right? It didn't matter. Uh, what happened to Hulk Hogan as long as he came out on the, like, at the end of the story at WrestleMania, as long as Hulk Hogan was the winner, as long as our heroes were the winner, that was why these guys were telling these stories. That's why it was important. So I say again, on July 7th, 1996, <laughs> Hulk Hogan turned heel. So it happened at this event called Bash at the Beach, just real quick. Um, <laughs> these two guys... Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, they were from the WWF and we all knew it, but they kind of acted like they were like invading WCW where Hulk Hogan was. And there was a big match and they said, we have a mystery partner. Give us your three best, Sting, Lex Luger, Randy Savage, against the two of us and a mystery partner, right? A mystery partner. So the match starts. I just watched it today. On the, <laughs> uh, the match starts and the mystery partner's not there. What? Why? What? It's just the two of them. And eventually, we'll, we'll skip all the psychology in between, but Randy, Randy Savage is in the middle of the ring, getting his ass kicked by these two guys. He needs help, so who, who's coming down the aisle? Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan walks down to the aisle, obviously to rescue his best friend. It's not really true, but that's the truth they had us believe. His best friend, Randy Savage. And instead, he drops not one, not two, but three atomic leg drops on Randy Savage. Not even the reach around of a big boot beforehand, like just straight three leg drops. The fans are throwing trash in the ring. Hulk Hogan says that we betrayed him as fans, that 
He worked so hard for us for all those years, and we turned our back on him. We didn't appreciate him anymore. So now he and these two outsiders are going to take over the world. He didn't... He didn't just say professional wrestling. He said, we're going to take over the whole world. And then I thought we could make some sort of like Hulk Hogan, like going to like Iraq and like taking out the, taking out the Saddam Hussein regime with like a sleeper hold. But he already did that at WrestleMania six. That actually happened. So this was sort of the first time I, I was, uh, I, I, we couldn't afford the pay-per-view events, which is what this was. So I had to like watch like the tacky recap the next night on WCW Monday Nitro. So I didn't even get to like experience this thing organically as it happened. I got this like hit you in the face with the terrible, terrible thing, the history changing thing that happened the night before. Hulk Hogan was now a bad guy. So at 10 years old in 1996, I had my first like existential crisis. <laughs> I started asking myself the questions that I continue to ask myself to this day. How could I be so wrong about something that I knew that strongly Hulk Hogan was my hero. Who are the good guys in the world? (laughs) And what is the truth? What is the truth of everything? So... uh, I, I, you know, kept searching um, and I did what any sort of self-respecting child of a single mother growing up in the Midwest would do when he was on a search for truth. I joined a youth group. Um... Started going to church, um, and I and I dove in. Like I really got into this this thing. I was su- I was super into the into the Christian uh, the whole the whole game. Uh, I was on a trajectory. That's sort of a different story for a different theme. Uh, but I was on a trajectory that if if my faith didn't eventually break down. Uh, I probably would like be the pastor of one of those basketball stadium churches right now. Uh, and I'd probably like own a really big boat, which would be cool. Um, but just like my faith in Hulk Hogan had to eventually break, that faith eventually broke as well. And if uh, you ever have a theme of like when a American church splits over the cost of a basketball gym they were building in the back of the church, uh, I'd be happy to tell the story of how my faith actually broke down. Um, so I'm still looking for the answers to those questions now, uh, and somehow I ended up being an improviser uh, where I make my own myths, and I think whenever I'm improvising, I'm trying to create good guys and bad guys and see if these creatures that I'm creating for that moment, these heels and baby faces, know the answers to those questions. Uh, and that's what led me to Chicago, where about three years ago, I met Hulk Hogan. Um, it was at a book signing. Uh, but I got, but I did, but something cool happened. Uh, I met Hulk Hogan. I was near the end of the line. I shook his hand and I was telling him how he was my hero when I was a kid. And this, uh, book signing was a day after he announced he was returning to wrestling after about five years off. And he shakes my hand and he says, you know, I'm coming back. Of course. I told him, yeah, of course. Uh, we're all, I said, we're all over it. I think I was indicating that, like, we're, like, wrestling fans. Like, we together, we know it. And I made this motion of, like, a keyboard. Because there's this whole internet wrestling fan thing where the internet re- the internet wrestling fans know a little bit more about what's going on than just your regular, your regular old wrestling fan. And so, and we pride ourselves on that, you guys. Uh, and so, I think Hulk, Hulk somehow recognized that I was on the pulse of, of the wrestling industry. And he, he stops, he puts his pen down, and he says... Hey, what's Vince saying? <laughs> to me, to me. 
Like, I know Vince McMahon's, like, perception of this. Like, like... <laughs> like, Hulk thought it had trickled down to some, like, easy board forum. Like, I don't know that I would know. Of course, I didn't know anything, but in that moment, I said, well, nothing yet, but you know he's going to take his shots, brother. <laughs> I called him brother and he shook my he put his hand out to shake my hand again and he goes yeah you're right brother <laughs> and I could feel in that second handshake that betrayal from when I was 10 years old like kind of washing off it was like me and my hero had this moment to reconcile where he needed me in that brief moment Hulk Hogan needed me to ease his mind about this nervous decision he was making about getting back into wrestling and it not being with Vince. It was with another company. Uh, so I think what I learned by, you know, worshiping at the altar of Hulk Hogan, then the altar of Jesus Christ, that's, they're right next to each other in level <laughs> And then finding myself as an improviser as, and getting back into wrestling again. I went to WrestleMania 30 two weeks ago. We'll talk later. Uh, <laughs> I learned that heroes will always come and go in life. Um, they're not always going to have the answers. The truth is out there, but I don't know if uh, it's really that fun to figure it out exactly. Um, your heroes aren't going to always be able to tell you the answers to your questions, but as long as they're shining a light on those topics, on those ideas in your life, then I think they're doing their job. Thanks. I sincerely want to thank you for that story because, not that what I always say isn't sincere, but I, I'm i a big comics guy and I always wonder why there's such a huge crossover between comic book fans and wrestling fans and I think you kind of put a, a point on that for me very nicely. So thank you very much. That was awesome. Claire, did you come up here to say something? No, I came up here to sing something. Oh, yeah. I, w- I will say, though, uh, your stories completely true. I've now been coming to your stories for about three years. And uh, your stories taught me something I did not know before, which was that that overlap between wrestling fans and nerds, I didn't know existed. I, <laughs> that was not what I imagined when I thought of people who were wrestling fans. Like, my, my only exposure to wrestling fans that I knew of growing up was my stepbrother, who was, like, an asshole and, a, like, a super jock, like, ooh, you you read comics, you fucking geek. So, like, I thought every wrestling fan was like that. That is super not true I at all. I just imagined you as a 12-year-old and you still had long hair and a beard. <laughs> true. We're going to take it out with one more song. Speaking of nerds, guys, you absolutely, like, it is a requirement that you sing along on one... Yeah. Maybe sing is the wrong word, but you help us out on one key part of this I'm song. A, I'm a hype woman. You're all right. That's my whole job. Cool. I made it my job. All right. Got to work out the jitters from my hand after Thriller. One, two, three, four. Um... <laughs>
www.nerdalogs.com Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.